So we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit. So this is part two of the fruit of the Spirit series um, we've been doing. Um, in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the Apostle Paul lists nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning, we'll be looking at the second of those, which is joy. So last week, Brian looked at love. We'll look at joy. And then throughout the summer, we'll be looking at different attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. And so when we do this, we can often think that, you know, uh, it's like a cornucopia of fruit of the Spirit. So, you know, this week we've got love. That's a fruit. So that's like an apple. This week we got joy. That's like a banana. This week we've got an, um, self-control. That's like a grape. And all these types of things are different, completely different fruits. But if you look in the context, if you look at the grammar, you'll see that the word fruit is singular. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. And so uh, the fruit of the Spirit is one whole thing. And so uh, I'm going to steal an illustration from Will because he has plenty to choose from. Um, I'm sorry, Will, but I guess it's the perks of going first. Um, but we were talking about this in our staff meeting, what it's like, and, and, and we're kind of struggling with how to kind of communicate this. And Will says it's like an apple. It's like an apple that you, you bite into an apple, and there's all these different nuances of flavor, but it's one fruit. So an apple is sweet, an apple is tart, it's crisp, it's cold. It's got all these different attributes of it, and it's one fruit. And so similarly, that is the fruit of the Spirit. So we can't say, you know, that I'm a, I'm a person, I have love, but I don't have much self-control. That's just not who I am. Or maybe I'm just not very joyful. It's not who I am. Because the Spirit of God is one, and He has one goal in mind, and He's working one fruit in us, and all of these are connected. And so today we'll be looking at joy. We'll look at joy's nature and hindrances, joy's source and proper object, and the path and promise of joy. But before we jump into that, I want us to kind of step back a little more and briefly discuss the idea of the fruit of the Spirit generally. So there's a couple things we need to remember. First, let's remember that our salvation, that salvation is a Trinitarian effort. Salvation is a Trinitarian effort. We worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father elected us and sent his Son for us, who purchased us by his substitutionary life and death, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us as individuals. Also remember that salvation is more than justification. Salvation is more than justification. Sure, the central component of the gospel is the fact that we are counted righteous before God based on the merit of Christ alone. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Not only are we saved from the wrath of God, but we are saved to holiness. We're saved to holiness, to conformity to the image of Christ. We are saved to an inheritance that is worthy of the only begotten Son of God. And that is yours in Christ, Christian. So God didn't just wipe your slate clean and count you righteous by imputation, and that he did, praise God, but he is on a holistic mission. God wants to redeem you completely. He wants to make you a new creation, like that first blade of grass that sprouted after the great flood, lush, green, and full of life. It grows into maturity and multiplies into a beautiful prairie, reinvigorating the earth, which was once dead. And so two weeks ago, Brian preached 
a message on the work of the Spirit and regeneration. And that is this new birth, that first glorious sprout of spring. And praise God that the Spirit's work continues from there. He keeps cultivating and watering and fertilizing as we grow into maturity, as we grow into holiness. And if all this holiness talks sounds like more than you bargained for when you became a Christian, I encourage you to examine yourself this morning. If you want salvation, but not holiness, listen, listen closely. If you want salvation, but not holiness, then you really don't want salvation at all. And you're wasting your time sitting here this morning. Wanting salvation without holiness is like wanting to go on a once-in-a-lifetime road trip, but there aren't any roads. The goal of salvation is holiness. And here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing, and this is why you should stay here and listen this morning. Holiness is not the joy kill that you think it is. When you think of holiness, you're probably thinking of a grouchy-faced old man standing there like this. I'm holy, holier than thou. Thinks he's better than everyone. No fun, man. He's allergic to fun. That's what you think of when you think of holiness. But that is not holiness. Holiness is not a joy kill. In fact, holiness includes infinite, never-ceasing, ever-increasing joy. And God is so serious about giving you this joy that he put his son on a cross to purchase it for you. And if you will trust him, he will fill you with his spirit and get to work filling you more and more with the happiness your soul is longing for. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an application of the redemption that Christ has purchased. And God will not be cheated out of what he has paid for. It's as sure as the sovereign will of God. So that's why we're talking about joy this morning. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And the whole point of the fruit of the Spirit is our sanctification, It's our becoming more like Christ. It's us becoming more holy. And to be holy is to be joyful. Okay, so what is joy? Let's talk about the nature of joy. Joy is one of those things that everyone knows what it is, but if you ask them to define it or explain it, they start stuttering and they have a really hard time explaining it, especially Christians. We Christians have made joy an unnecessarily complicated thing. And I'll explain why that is in a second. But first, I want to give you my definition of joy that we'll be working with this morning. Joy is a feeling of great happiness and satisfaction in response to good news. Joy is a feeling of great happiness and satisfaction in response to good news. And you'll notice that this is a general definition of joy. This doesn't just apply to just believers. This is a general definition. That joy is something that anyone can experience, happiness and satisfaction in response to good news. And this brings us to the first and biggest reason why many Christians are confused and have conflicted thoughts on joy. And if you've got discerning ears and you've been around church very long, um, you probably have already detected it. 
And that is the question. Is there a difference between joy and happiness? Is there a difference between joy and happiness? And I may be in the minority in the room today, hopefully not after we're done, but I may right now be in the minority when I answer that question and say, not really. Not really much of a difference between happiness and joy. Sure, there are differences, but they overlap far more than they separate. And this may not be the answer you were expecting, since many modern Christians believe that joy is this settled, constant state of confident perseverance. It's a state of being. And that happiness is an unstable, fluffy, and fleeting thing. You know, the, the, the world has happiness, but Christians have joy. They're these completely separate categories. But I'm convinced that the Bible uses joy and happiness uh, very much as synonyms. So hang with me just a moment um, and let me make the case. But before we do that, I want you to kind of go with me just a second. Would you agree that if the Bible said happiness was a fruit of the Spirit, that you would know immediately what that meant? That you wouldn't sit there and ponder and go, well, what does that look like? How do I apply that to my life? It'd be straightforward. You'd know exactly what was expected. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you the assurance that you can leave here today with the same clarity and understanding of the word joy. That no longer will it be this convoluted, uh, ethereal thing that you can't get your hands on, but you will understand it. So what do the dictionaries say about joy? Merriam-Webster's dictionary says joy is a feeling of great happiness. The American Heritage Dictionary defines it as an intense and especially ecstatic or exultant happiness. The Collins English Dictionary says joy is a deep feeling or condition of happiness or contentment. Now you may say, Clint, those are secular dictionaries. I say, yep, totally. You're right. Let's look at some Christian dictionaries. The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Can't get much more Christian than that. Especially with the long titles. But it defines joy as happiness over an an unanticipated or present good. On the spiritual level, joy refers to the extreme happiness with which the believer contemplates salvation and the bliss of afterlife. The Dictionary of Bible Themes defines happiness as a state of pleasure or joy experienced both by people and by God. And it also defines joy as a quality or attitude of delight and happiness. So do you see it? Joy is happiness, and happiness is joy. I don't have to go with more definitions, because consider these common phrases. He jumped for joy. Is that an emotionless event when you jump for joy? You know, your team wins the game, and it's involuntary. You jump up. The child is a bundle of joy. There's something about a chunky, fat little baby that just makes you smile. Randy Alcorn has a fantastically thorough book. I'm talking 500 pages on just happiness. And in it, there are several chapters devoted to this debate. And in all of his study, the earliest example of a theologian speaking against happiness that he could find is Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers wrote, My utmost for his highest in the early 20th century. 
And it was in that work that he said, joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it is an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with him. Now, he took it all the way to 10. It's an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness with him. Now, I have a lot of respect for Oswald Chambers. He wrote some amazing things. He was an amazing Christian. You should read his story. But I completely disagree with that statement. And compare that statement to these statements from earlier theologians. Jonathan Edwards said that the happiness Christ gives his people is a participation of his own happiness. So here we have Christ giving us happiness because it's a participation in his own happiness. It doesn't sound insulting. And then speaking of the covenant of redemption, this relationship and agreement between the members of the Godhead and the Trinity, Puritan John Flavel said, Our eternal happiness lay now before them. Our dearest and everlasting concerns were now in their hands. Charles Spurgeon said, Despite your tribulation, take full delight in God, your exceeding joy this morning, and be happy in him. You see, Spurgeon saw what Chambers missed. Chambers, as brilliant as he was and with good intentions, he saw people seeking happiness apart from God, and he knew that was sinful. So he preached against happiness and replaced it with a more spiritualized, stoic joy. And Spurgeon saw that it isn't the pursuit of happiness that was inherently sinful. It's the pursuit of happiness apart from God that is sinful. You see that? That's huge. That's a huge distinction. Even more modern theologians, such as A.W. Tozer, Joni Erickson Tata, and John Piper agree. Piper says this, if you have nice little categories, joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. They are synonyms. And so there's one last little caveat I want to add on this. And before I go on, again, I recommend Randy Alcorn's book if you want more on this. But first, we need to talk about semantic domains. Semantic domains is a term that linguists use um, to describe the general scope of the meaning of a word or the meaning of a group of words. So words don't just have one meaning. All right, I was thinking about this the other day uh, because I think about random things for some reason. But the word bark is weird. The word bark. So it's the skin of a tree, bark, or it's the sound that a dog makes. It's like, those can't be more different, but it's the same word. And on the flip side, you can have a whole group of words that have the same roundabout meaning. And that's what we're talking about today. This is a semantic domain. Joy, happiness, delight, pleasure, gladness, cheer. All of these are in the same semantic domain, and they all roughly mean the same thing. So I've got this illustration on the screen here. I'm as pixelated as it may be. Um, You can see where these different words, they have overlapping meanings. Now, there are places where they differ. So I'm not saying happiness and joy is the exact same thing. I'm saying they overlap, and there's places, and they overlap far more than they contrast. Think of it like colors. You have your normal, what I call man colors, red, yellow, blue, Green. And then you have your woman colors. Sea foam green. (laughs) Coral. And Himalayan mist. (laughs) So there are differences 
I grant there's a difference between Himalayan mist and blue, but it's subtle and you can rightly call Himalayan mist blue. Mike Mason helpfully rounds it out like this. He says, happiness without joy is shallow and transient because it's based on outward circumstances rather than an attitude of the heart. And we can amen that. And then he says, as for joy without happiness, it's a spiritualized lie. The Bible does not separate joy and happiness, and neither should we. If we can get the unnecessary confusion out of our minds, we can better see the beauty of what the gospel offers. If we tell people that the gospel doesn't bring happiness, then how's it good news? Happiness is what everyone is looking for. Our message isn't, don't seek happiness. Our message is, you'll find in Jesus all the happiness you have been looking for. Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Good news of great joy is what the angel's saying, and that's what I want to proclaim to you this morning. So I've spent this time describing this, because I think we have a better understanding of the experience of happiness than joy. And when we see that they have far more in common than they differ, we can understand joy a lot better. Hopefully this clears the water some. And I want to look at five characteristics of, of joy. First is joy is demonstrable. Joy is demonstrable. It's a real emotion that really manifests itself physically. Like I said, when your team wins the game in the last seconds, it's involuntary. You just leap for joy. A truly happy person can't hide a smile. They don't have to explain themselves. It's like lighting a candle in a dark room. Nobody lights a candle in a pitch black room and goes, hey guys, I just lit a candle. No, the candle proclaims its own brilliance. It speaks for itself. And the scripture says there's no law against joy. No law against joy. And I've got to say this. Don't hold it against me, but I've got to say this. Some of you act like it's against the law to rejoice. Hear what Spurgeon says about the effect of this type of person on a church. What nice Sunday school teachers some Christians I know would make Come, you children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the miseries of religion. <laughs> and the dear brother begins by telling the children about the slew of despond, giant despair in the valley of the shadow of death. He wonders when he gets home that the dear children are not attracted to the ways of godliness. Are they likely to be? A member of a church who has no joy of the Lord is little likely to encourage or influence others. They edge away from him. Do people in your community group see you this way? You see, a joyful person is pleasant to be around, which leads us to the next characteristic. Joy is contagious. Have you ever been with a group of friends and you missed a joke or something and, and they start laughing and then for some reason everyone is laughing and then minutes later you don't even know why you're laughing that's because that original joy, their joy, has overflowed into yours. Not only is joy contagious, but when joy spreads, it is increased. Now, I use this illustration all the time. I'm going to use it again because it's good. But when you have that 
that delicious steak, that nice buttery grass-fed steak that's cooked to perfection. It's a delight to your taste buds. And it goes deep into your being. But what's the first thing you do after that? Cut off another piece and you give it to whoever you're eating with and say, you have got to try this and you won't back down until they try it. The reason for this is that when they eat it and they enjoy it, your enjoyment of that steak is increased even more. Takes it to a deeper level. By watching them enjoy it, your enjoyment is increased. And friends, this is Christian ministry. This is Christian ministry. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have found him to be the delight of our souls. And we want our friends and our family and strangers to experience it as well. When we can't get enough of the glory of God, those around us will want a taste. Joy is contagious. The next characteristic is often underestimated, and that is the expulsive power of joy. Joy is expulsive. Despair can't remain in a heart that is full of joy. If you're struggling with sin, you need a greater joy. Lesser joys of lust or drunkenness or of a high-profile social status, these are blown away by the supreme joy of fellowship with the supreme being. Joy is expulsive. Joy is sustaining. And at this point, since I emphasize happiness, you may be wondering if I am the denying the reality of suffering and sorrow in the Christian life. And emphatically, I am not denying this. Suffering and sorrow is very real. So real is sorrow in a broken world that it requires supernatural joy to sustain us through it all. And the good news is that this supernatural joy is supplied in abundance through the Spirit of God. Paul says the theme of the Christian life is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6.10. And this doesn't mean that you pretend that you're not hurting. This doesn't mean you ignore the pain and you hide in isolation. This simply means that because of what Christ has done, and what he will do, you have infinitely more reasons to rejoice than to mourn. And church, we are to weep with those who weep. We're to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. One of the most difficult parts of living as a community is that sometimes you see others receive gifts from the Lord that you have been praying for for years. And the Lord hasn't seen fit to give them to you. And you see others receive them. And as they celebrate, your heart is being ripped out of your chest. That's real. Yet, in Christian love, we looked at last week, at the same time, you should be rejoicing with your brothers and sisters celebrating God's grace in their lives and trusting him with yours. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy is sustaining. And finally, joy is a universal longing. Every human being who has ever lived has had a longing for joy. We just want to be happy. Even Jesus was driven by joy in the glory of God. 
As Vicari read earlier in um, Hebrews 12, it says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured much suffering because he saw the joy on the other side and the joy in it, the joy of doing the Father's will. He saw what was on the other side and he pursued joy with all he has. We're no different except for our joy is tainted by sin. We choose careers, spouses, even churches that make us happy. Yet it is oh so elusive. Just when you think you found it, it's gone again. We say, if I could just graduate high school, I'd be happy. And then it's college. I just graduate college. Then I'm happy. Then get a job. Then retire. Or if I could just get married, have kids, get rid of those kids. Right? It's never ending. The cycle is never ending and never satisfying. There's always something better on the horizon. The grass is always greener on the other side. Why? Why is that? What are the hindrances to joy? You could sum it up in a single word, idolatry. I know you're not bowing down to wooden statues, or maybe you are, but whatever occupies the supreme seat of your affections is your God. Whatever occupies the supreme seat of your affections is your God. As Oswald Chambers pointed out, men looking for happiness apart from God is a definition of idolatry. The reason we thirst for joy is because we have been cut off from the fountain of all joy. Man in his natural state without the regenerating work of the spirit is under a curse. As Puritan Richard Sibbs put it, before the heart be changed, our judgment is depraved in regard of our last end, meaning our purpose in life. We seek our happiness where it is not to be found. We go looking for happiness where it can't be found and where it shouldn't be found. See, our chief end should be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But our depravity keeps us from doing that. John Piper says, depravity is not just badness, but blindness to beauty and deadness to joy. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, tells us about this state. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, because we are broken at our core due, due to man's rebellion against God, we're like dead men walking. We're like zombies chasing after the next piece of meat. We're blind to true beauty and dead to true joy. Apart from Christ, we're like the woman at the well in John 4, hopping from one man's bed to the next, looking for the one who would satisfy her longing for approval and acceptance. And Jesus tenderly, without condemnation, says, come to me and I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. That's shocking. 
Why can he say that? Why, who rather, is Jesus that he can offer unending joy? He's nonetheless than the source of all joy. He is the fountain of living water, a bottomless fountain overflowing its sides with rivers of delight. He's the God-man. This means he shares all the qualities of the divine nature. And one of those attributes of God is blessedness or happiness. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This implies that all of God's choices are based on what brings him the most pleasure. He's happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should rejoice in that. There is a perfect harmonious union of persons within God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equally delight in one another. This is an eternal joyous relationship. And we get a glimpse into that relationship in Jesus' prayer in John 17. In John 17, verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 13, he says, These things I speak in the world that they, speaking of us, the church, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's crazy. We have the joy of Christ fulfilled in us is what Jesus is praying for, that that would happen. And guess what? Jesus' prayers, if any prayer, anybody's prayers are going to be answered, it's Jesus's. And he pray, prayed that we would have his joy in us. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So through faith in Christ, we are wrapped up into an eternal community of divine bliss. That's why we sing, in perfect holiness and eternal triune bliss, you opened up your heart and sweetly called us in. That is what we get in the gospel. And all spiritual blessings come to us only because we are in Christ. We have union with him. And this doctrine is beautifully set forth for us in Ephesians 1. It is in him that we are chosen. It is in him that we are adopted. It is in him that we have redemption through his blood. It is in him that all things are united and reconciled to God. It is in him that we have obtained an inheritance. And it is in him that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee that all of God's promises are certainties for us. So are you looking for joy? Are you exhausted from searching for the next thing that will satisfy you? Be reconciled to the source. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And that covenant was made at the cross. 
During the Lord's Supper, Jesus says to us, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Indestructible joy in God is infallibly secured for us by the blood of the covenant. God has done what the law, weakened by sinful flesh, could not do. He solved our biggest problem. Remember, we are idolaters at heart. We worship wrongly. We need new hearts. And listen what God promised to do centuries before in this new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And listen to this. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is so relevant to where we've been in Galatians. You see, the Galatians were looking to the law of Moses for justification. They wanted to measure their standing before God by looking to the law. But the problem was not with the law, but with their hearts. They couldn't keep the law. It's impossible for sinful man to uphold the perfect law of God. But what did Paul tell them? He told them that salvation has never come by the law, that salvation comes by promise, by covenant. In the new covenant, Christ fulfills the law for us. He's executed under our curse and resurrected that we may have new life. Well, what about the law? God writes it on our heart. God supplies our needs. Why? This is key. Why does God supply our needs? Because God has pleasure in the pleasure of his people. God has pleasure in the pleasure of his people. No longer is the law a covenant of works by which we are condemned, but the law is a rule of life that leads us along the path of joy. So God wires the universe to, to lead us in the fullness of joy. And when we see God as a good father who takes pleasure in the pleasure of his children, you understand that his commandments aren't to stifle our joy. I want you to hear that clearly. God's commandments aren't to stifle your joy. They are to lead us along the path of the fullness of joy. And when we sin, when we sin, we are departing from the path of joy. We're trying to run against the gears. We block out the light of the goodness of God. Entertaining the smallest sin has a great impact on our joy. The sun is 864,576 miles across. But with my hand, which is only seven inches long, I can block out the light of the sun. I can block my experience of the radiance of joy that God has freely offering to us with the smallest of sin. The path of joy is living in a guilt-free awareness of the presence of God. And those words, guilt-free, are essential. The biggest hindrance to a Christian's joy is guilt. It's guilt. See, we're, we're well aware that we're in the presence of God. Like sometimes we feel trapped in his presence and we can't escape that he's looking on us with a frown. 
disappointed that we have broken his law once again. We've sinned greatly, disgustingly against him. And we're ashamed and never feel the joy of full forgiveness and acceptance. And if that is you this morning, look to the cross. Look to the cross and get there as fast as you can. Your sin is indeed heinous and disgusting and wretched. But your sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Your sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Anything that would turn your omniscient father's face into a frown has been utterly punished at the cross. And he looks at you with nothing but a smile. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is God's heart towards you, Christian. Parents in the room, If you had the power to give your children one thing in life, what would that be? I bet it would be happiness. Because you you try your best. You try your best to make them happy. You try to teach them how to be happy. But ultimately, that's out of your control. But guess what? It's not out of God's control. Nothing is out of God's control. And that's why joy, listen to this, that's why joy is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Because God is determined to make his children happy and he will not fail. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit and the Spirit is not a barren tree. He will produce abundant fruit. God hasn't just put joy within our reach and told us to go for it, go get it. He has put joy in us through his spirit. And this he will do more and more as we grow into maturity. There will be setbacks for sure. The flesh, the devil, and the world will assault us, but never assail us. Our joy, as pure as its source may be, will be tainted by our sin until Christ returns. And as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, he will make all things sad come untrue. I love that. And this is our hope. We have this great hope, church. God has promised us the fullness of joy in his immediate presence forever and ever. He will wipe away every tear. Every painful memory will only serve to intensify your present experience of holy ecstasy. Our bodies, now feeble and failing, will be made new, strong, with new capacities for pleasure that you can't even imagine. No more death, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more insecurity, All peace, all freedom, all acceptance, all love, all joy, all Christ. You see, that is why we can simultaneously be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
because we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls in front of us, that we can persevere through the suffering because we know the joy that lies on the other side. You see, there's not a difference between the world's happiness and our happiness. The joy is the source of the happiness. The reason our joy is steadfast and constant and sure is because the source of our joy, the object of our joy, is constant and steadfast and sure. So if you're not in Christ, if God is not the source of your joy, man, you're always going to be searching. It's feeble. It's fleeting. It's like that that puff of smoke that just blows in the wind because it's not based on anything solid. You have the right desire. You have the right desire. It's because you're in the image of God. And you desire to be happy because God is happy. So if you're looking for this unshakable joy, first you need a new heart. Confess that you have forsaken God, the fountain of all living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for yourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Come and drink and be filled. I'm going to ask the band to come up now. And as we sing in response, there will be pastors around the room. If you have questions about this, come talk to us. You can also check on the connection card there in your bulletin, the box that says, I'd like to know more about following Christ. And it'll be our joy to follow up with you. Church, this joy is yours in Christ. All you have to do is come with empty hands and claim it. It's yours. And if it's been a while since you've experienced it, he hasn't left you. He's been here the whole time. Drink afresh. For now, joy enters into us. But then, then we will enter into joy. This is our hope. So let's pray towards that end. Oh, fountain of all joy, our most holy God and Father, we come to you so thankful. You've been so good to us. Man, we have just squandered your glory. We've took advantage of your name. We've done all this that has separated us from you. But you pursued us at great cost to your own son. And you have put your spirit in us to assure that we have joy. Lord, help us to believe you. Help us to believe you that this unshakable joy is ours. Let us not believe the lies that we have disqualified ourselves from experiencing your joy, but that Christ has qualified us. God, would you please do that? God, I long to see this church overflowing with joy in the glory of God. Help us to experience that now as we sing. And may you be pleased with the continued worship of your people. For Christ's sake, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.